I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 John. We're going to be in the first chapter, looking at verses 1 through 4 this evening. 1 John, not to be confused with the Gospel of John, keep going closer to Revelation. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And as you're turning there, I will also invite you to uh, go with me one more time as we uh, go to our God in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we are so thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, we know that as we open up the Word of God tonight, we are opening up your self-revelation. And Lord, we also know that unless you open our eyes by the power of your Spirit, we will be blinded to what you have to say to us. And so we pray, open our eyes to see, even our spiritual eyes to truly see, And Lord, that you would warm our hearts to receive what you have for us and that it would change us, shape us, make us like Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. The book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear now God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you. The eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have heard and seen, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever, doesn't it? Amen? The saying has been popularized that there are at least two things you can look at when examining a person to find out what it is about them that they truly value, what they value the most. Those two things that you can look at is how do they spend their time and how do they spend their money. You follow the paper trail of someone's life and see what their budget looks like and what their time clock looks like, you'll see what they value the most. And if we were to do a survey of the life of of John, the apostle who has written this letter, we would see pretty quickly that uh, John put his money and his time where his heart was. John left a very solid fishing business that his dad had started, and uh, he left that secure livelihood and spent the rest of his life, all of his adult life practically, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. He was exiled for it. He was tortured and suffered for it, and in the end, he died for it. So John put his time and money where his heart was, and and that was his heart panted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you can imagine how frustrating it would have been for John, who now here, as he's writing this letter at the very end of his ministry, he's approaching the end of his life, there is arising this divergent heretical group that is 
trying to lead Christians away from the true gospel that he's dedicated his life to. They're trying to preach an entirely different Jesus. They're preaching about a Jesus who they did not even truly believe that he was God in the flesh. And so they also undermined his death, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, did not truly die. Right? This was probably the very early seedbed of Gnosticism or even Docetism. These, these divergent groups were preaching a completely different Jesus. And, and as we can tell, if you, if you continue reading through this book, what you'll pick up on is that there are, there are people leaving the church following after this new gospel that's not even gospel at all. And so John is going to wage war with this divergent group by calling Christians to continue in the proclamation of the apostolic gospel. That's the key, right? Continue in the proclamation of the apostolic gospel. Just as John needed to remind Christians in his day of the primacy of the preaching of the Word of God, we need that reminder in our day. One of the first things that attracted me to Reformed theology, Presbyterianism specifically, right, is that we put a premium on the Word of God. We put a premium on the preaching of God's Word. I loved that. I remember walking into my first Presbyterian worship service and it was just reading God's word, praying God's word, preaching God's word, it filled me with life and stability. And John is telling us that we need that in the hour in which we live, just as he needed it in the hour in which he lived. And so what I think we're going to see from this passage is that John makes three major emphases, each of these building on the other. First, through the preaching or through the proclamation of the gospel, we have access to the true and living Christ. And because we have access to the true and living Christ, we also have fellowship with him. And because we have access to him and fellowship with him, that also means that we have participation in the fullness of joy. So let's look at those tonight. First of all, John says that through the preaching of the gospel, we have access to the true and living Christ. Look what he says right there, verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The first thing that John says is that which was from the beginning. Now, if you think about the fact that we're preaching through the gospel of John on our Sunday morning worship services, you might go back a few dozen sermons, back to chapter 1, and you'll remember that, that the gospel of John starts and sounds so much like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what is this? This is such an echo, right, of, of he's talking about Jesus Christ. And he's talking about Christ in eternity, that he is God from all eternity. But then second of all, he says, that which we have seen, heard, and, and handled with our hands. Not only is, is Christ from eternity, but now he's talking about the greatest object lesson that has ever taken place in human history. When God became a flesh and dwelt among us. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. 
And he came to us to reveal to us who the Father was. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's talking about the hypostatic union here, isn't he? He's telling his readers and he's telling us tonight, church, that if we're going to know the true gospel, this is the Jesus that you must know. The one that came in the flesh. The one that we saw and heard and handled. This Jesus, the genuine Jesus, not some generic brand Jesus that the heretics of his day and how many heretical groups across the centuries have cooked up, right? Generic Jesuses. No, we need to know the real Christ. Second, the apostles, he says, were eyewitnesses to the revelation of the incarnation. He says in verse 2, the life was made manifest or the life was revealed we have seen it and we testify and proclaim it to you the first thing that that the apostles did is he says that they testified right this this is that they saw him with their eyes they they were actually there they have an eyewitness testimony if you're in a courtroom those of you maybe who have studied law or been part of a law court you'll you'll know that there's hardly anything better in a court of law than an eyewitness testimony. Someone who was actually there, who actually saw what happened. John says, that's, that's me. That's us. It's not gloating, but he's carrying a sense of authority. I knew him. The heretics that he's combating in this book didn't have that. They were not there. They did not know him. They did not see him. They did not handle him. He says, I was there. I'm a testifier. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses, same word, you'll be my testifiers all over the world, beginning in Jerusalem, then going to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then second, he says that they proclaim it to us. The apostles proclaim it to us. What good is an eyewitness testimony if that eyewitness is unwilling to take the stand and tell the jury what they saw, what they heard, what they witnessed. The apostles not only saw Christ and knew Christ, but he sent them to be the arbiters of his gospel. And so they alone have the the authority to tell us who Christ was. Paul says the same thing. If you have have your Bibles handy, you want to turn with me super quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I wish I had more time to, un- to unpack this, but just to quickly summarize, in, in, sec- in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, these things, he's talking about the revelation of the gospel of Christ, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. In context, Paul is talking about him the ap- and the apostles, right? He's talking about the apostolic witness. That's the us he's talking about. These things God has revealed to us, the apostles, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. No one truly knows you like you know you. And the same is true for God. No one knows God like God knows God. And, And for God, it's so much so that if he didn't reveal himself to us if he didn't open himself up to show us who he is we would never know him and Paul is saying that that revelation has been passed to the apostolic band 
And then in verse 13, he says, And we impart this word, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, right? We impart, we pass this on to you. And then he says, We're interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. And so the, pri the primary means that we receive the gospel is what? Through the preaching of God's word. How do we truly know who Christ was? How do we get access to the true Christ? The Westminster Confession says the reading, but especially the preaching of the word. And then Paul, in Romans 10, 13 through 17, you probably know this, Paul says, the God, uh, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him and who they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the good news I have a couple of students in the last couple of years at Bethesda who I've had a lot of conversations with and they're both self-proclaimed atheists they want nothing to do with God Christianity, any sort of organized religion, they completely deny that there is a God at all. When they die, that's it. They go back, big bang, it's all going to fizzle out. There's really no ultimate purpose to life. And they have made the comment several times that the only way that they would even begin to believe in God or believe in Jesus is if God himself came down to them and appeared to them and showed himself to them, right? They want their own personal independent revelation from God like they want to be able to touch Jesus hear Jesus see Jesus for themselves and unless that happens they have no interest in God of course we as Christians would say that we know that that's wrong that's a bad mentality to have that God has already revealed himself to us and he's revealed himself and shown himself to us in his word but you know sometimes I wonder that even Christians fall into the same way of thinking as atheists the market right now is flooded with people who claim that you can have your own personal revelation from God, that you can receive a prophetic word, or you can give a prophetic word, that you can have your own private revelation with God. Right? We have this tendency, even as Christians, to want God to prove himself to us in the flesh. We want continued revelation. We were talking about that, some of us, before church started. But what John emphasizes is that, church, if you want to know the true Christ, if you really want access to the real Jesus, you don't need anything more than what we've had in this church service tonight. The clear and the coherent reading, singing, praying, preaching, and like we have in our morning worship services with the Lord's table, the seeing of God's word. And it's through that that you have access to the true Christ. He has left behind a true witness to who he really is. And so, since we have access to the true and living Christ through the preaching of the word, that means, number two, we have fellowship with him. How can you be in fellowship with someone you do not know? Well, since we know him through the preaching of God's word, that means we can have fellowship with him. Verse 3, John says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. 
so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. The Greek word there, quinea, can be translated in several different ways. It can be translated communion, communion, partnership, has the idea of relationship. This is a word that introduces familiarity and intimacy, right? That, that you know him, that you're walking with him, that you are in communion with him. And we're in communion with him first. It's, look what John says. He says that you have fellowship with us. We have fellowship with the apostles. We talk about how we have fellowship with one another. That's why we're here tonight, right? Because we love one another. We're in fellowship with one another. We're in community together. We're going to get together and have small groups this week, right? Because we love to, to be in unity and community with one another. We have fellowship. John had a group of heretics that were trying to disrupt that fellowship of God's people and were trying to start a new fellowship. He says, don't go to that fellowship. It's no fellowship at all. This is the fellowship of God. Why? Well, because number two, he says, we have fellowship. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. The reason, brothers and sisters, that we're here tonight, we have fellowship with one another, is because we're all branches connected to the same vine. We're all living stones being built up around the same cornerstone. We're all part of the one bride of the one groom, Jesus Christ. So we have fellowship together because we have fellowship with Christ. The heretics didn't have that in John's day because they were not in fellowship. They didn't have access to the true Jesus. So they couldn't have fellowship with one another because they had nothing to have their fellowship centered around. John in his gospel as he's recording how Jesus prayed over his disciples just before he went to the cross in John 17 11, Jesus prays and he says Holy Father keep them in your name talking about his disciples right keep them in your name your one name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one I want you to think of how beautiful the statement must have been the first time that the disciples heard it when Jesus looked at them and he said, I have not called you servants. I've called you friends. We're in fellowship with him. What does that matter though, right? What, what does fellowship matter? What does relationships with Christ, with God matter? John Eads is the author of a popular book um, it's a book on leadership called Eight Proven Principles to Elevate Others to Success, right? He wants to talk to leaders about how to get people, or, you know, rallied around an idea and to stick to it and see it through. And he said this. He said, people persevere. Get this. People persevere because of purpose, not pay. You would think that people... You know, take a job and, and, and work that job and do something because they're interested in the money. But he says, no. He says, if you really want to rally people around something, you've got to have purpose, not, not pay, not compensation. In other words, our ongoing relationships, our ongoing fellowships that we have with anyone or anything 
is based on that you feel like there is purpose in that relationship, that that relationship gives you purpose. And so the question for us tonight is what fellowships are we creating in our own lives as we search for purpose? For some, it's, it's, a, it's a career, right? That we, we find purpose in what we, in what we do for a living and we, and we are creating a fellowship around that career. All the people we hang out with and know and talk to are centered around that career, that thing that we all do together. For some, it's not career, maybe it's characters, people, right? You know, that, that we find purpose in who we follow, who we emulate. Everybody has a YouTube channel. Everybody has a Facebook following. Everybody's got a, everybody has a posse, you know? And sometimes the question is, is whose posse are you in, right? We've created a fellowship around all kinds of people who are sitting in a basement acting like experts, don't we? Truth, though, we may find, you know, purpose in politicians, preachers, pop stars. We create fellowships out of all kinds of people. Maybe, maybe you don't find a fellowship in your career or characters, but maybe causes. Maybe, maybe you find purpose in how you affect change in your world. Perhaps you consider yourself a I don't know, a philanthropist or a counselor or a social justice warrior, an equality activist, or hey, maybe you're just trying to be a good parent raising great kids and what a cause. And that is a good cause, right? But, but here's the admonition, careers, characters, causes, none of these fellowships, right? We create fraternities and sororities around all of these different things, but they don't bring us lasting purpose. The only fellowship that brings us lasting purpose is our fellowship with Christ. There is no greater cause than the cause of Christ. It's the only cause that has eternal significance. There is no character, there is no person that we could be in fellowship with that's greater than God himself. And to know that God is our father and that Christ is our elder brother. It's not in what we do, it's in what he has done. And when we realize that we're in fellowship with something so much bigger than ourselves, infinitely bigger than ourselves, you talk about purpose. You talk about something that will carry you day to day through the hardest days of your life. That kind of purpose will carry you because you are in fellowship with Almighty God. And so if we have access to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, because think about it, when we preach the gospel, like we're doing Sunday after Sunday, we are constantly reminded of who we are and what we have in him. And that constant reminder, that constant hugging of God's word that reminds us we're part of his family, that's what it means to have fellowship. So not only... Do we have access to Christ through, through the preaching of the gospel? Not only are we in fellowship with him through the preaching of the gospel, but because of those two things, we also get to participate in the fullness of joy. John says, we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. 
quickly, you'll notice he said first that we proclaim and now he says we write. It's the same referent. That which we write is that which we proclaim. How do we know what they proclaimed? Because it's been written. This is our final authority. This is what we hold our preaching accountable to is does it accurately reflect the Word of God? But, but, but to focus in specifically on joy, he says that we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I just want to be honest with you because I know that uh, different, different people are reading from different English translations in here this evening. I know we have some King James Version. I know we have some English Standard Version. And depending upon what translation that you're reading, you might have a slightly different interpretation of this verse. Some translations say that your joy may be complete. And some, like the English Standard Version, say we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Well, which one is it? If you really want a detailed answer of this, come see me after church. I don't have time to get into it with you, but the professional uh, theologians call this a textual variant because the handwritten Greek manuscripts that that, that we have because before the printing press that all had to be hand copied. Those handwritten manuscripts that we have, uh, it's split pretty evenly. About half say our joy and about half say your joy. And so we're left to try to decide on whether it's your or our based primarily on the context of this passage. And I would argue tonight that, that our joy is most accurate and that that is what John intended and what he originally wrote because for a couple of reasons. Number one, to say our joy makes verses 3 and 4 very parallel. Look at verse 3. He says, that which we have seen and we heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. So there's a progression, we to you for us. And then he does that same exact thing in verse 4. We for you, we to you for us. So there's a beautiful parallel with verse 3. And then if you think about the context of other things John has said, if you look, flip a couple of pages over to 3 John chapter, uh, verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. So the idea that, that John would be doing something for his own joy or that he would be preaching for his own joy is not foreign to John's mind. But now let me, let me clear up a quick misconception. Even if, if you choose your joy or our joy, it does not have any significant impact upon the meaning of the text, right? These two ideas are not mutually exclusive. They're not even contradictory whatsoever because the joy of proclaiming the gospel is shared mutually between John, the preacher, and his audience. John gets infinite joy from preaching the gospel and watching that gospel take root in people's hearts. That brings him so much joy. But at the same time, those who hear the gospel and receive the gospel, what joy they experience from receiving that truth. It's thundering right now. I am competing with the noise on this metal roof. 
We have been sitting here, I think, all of us crossing our fingers that the lights would not go out. And they still might before it's all over. But I, I, want, you to think about, I want you to think about that in the context of, of light, okay? Uh, if, if the power went off and the power came back on, when the power comes back on, all of a sudden these light bulbs are going to emanate light rays. And when they emanate those light rays, those rays are going to be soaked in or absorbed by some objects and other light rays are going to be reflected by those objects. And the absorbing of light rays and the reflecting of light rays is what gives you a panoply of colors and contrasts and helps you to see the shapes and the things in the room. Without the light, you couldn't see the objects and without the objects, you wouldn't even be able to know that there was light because they both need something to interact with. They interact with one another. They, they need one another to fulfill their ultimate purpose. And so it is with joy. Yeah, there's a, a joy in receiving the gospel, but there is also a joy in proclaiming that gospel. Imagine if light didn't have an object or if an object didn't have light. Imagine if you had the greatest news in the world that Jesus Christ saves sinners from their sin, but there was no one to tell. Would that joy be complete? So whether you're the proclaimer or the hearer, you are participating in the fullness of joy. I'll close with a quick story. I, I hope that this... I hope that this event is forever etched in my mind. I was teaching a uh, Bible class this past year at Bethesda. I had a group of high school boys, about 13 of them, and they were a captive audience. Uh, and they either listen to me and get a good grade or, you know, they can walk away with an F. And so I had a captive audience, and I was teaching a Bible class, and I, I had the privilege of teaching whatever I wanted. And so I thought that it would be excellent for them to hear uh, a series of lessons on the doctrine of justification. What does it mean to be justified, saved from sin? And we had gone through, we talking about the fall, we talking about the need for a redeemer, we talked about the significance of Jesus' death, and we had, you know, we'd kind of gone through all, a lot of that in one way or another. And, and we had come to uh, the passage in Matthew where we were studying about Jesus' wilderness temptations and how Jesus fasted for 40 days and, the, and, and Satan came to him and tempted him and, and how Jesus withstood that temptation. And I posed this question to those guys in that room that day. I said, I said, gentlemen, I said, we often talk about the importance of why did Jesus die? That's a great question. We need to know the answer to that question. Why did Jesus die? I said, but an equally important question, fellas, is why did Jesus live? They looked at me with blank looks, and uh, they stumbled around at an answer. And so we, we, we started to try to answer that question in light of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And, and we, we went all the way back to Genesis, which we had studied a couple of weeks before. And now we're comparing it with, with Jesus' wilderness temptations. And we're, I'm like, look, guys, okay, look, Adam and Eve are in a luscious garden full and plenty. Jesus is in a desert, fasted for 40 days, and he's starving. Adam and Eve have a serpent, Satan, who comes to tempt them. 
Jesus is in the wilderness. He has a serpent who comes to tempt him. I said, Satan told Adam and Eve, take and eat. Satan comes to Jesus and he says, turn these stones to bread, take and eat. Adam and Eve full, everything they could ever need. And they give in to the temptation and they worship themselves. I said, Jesus, fasting in a wilderness, hungry, weak in his flesh, and he withstands that temptation. The reason that Jesus lived is he came to do what Adam failed to do. He came to do what you and I fail to do every day. He came to live in perfect obedience to God so that whenever he saves us and he gives us his righteousness and the Father looks at us on judgment day, he doesn't see us, he sees his Son. I said, Jesus lived the life you should live and he lived it for you. And I will never forget, I have two or three of those guys' faces etched in my mind. I can still see the look on their face when that truth, when that light shone in their mind, when that truth settled upon their heart and the, the awe, the wonder, the magnanimity of it pierced their conscience. I'll never forget what that was like. I don't know whether it was more joy for me when I heard that the first time or whenever I told it to them and they heard it for the first time. It was, it was the most wonderful. I went home and told Andrew about it. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. The participation and the fullness of joy that, coming, that comes with knowing Christ and being in fellowship with him through the proclamation of the gospel. As we close, we'll start where we began. We began talking about the things that we value. What do we value? Do, do we value the proclamation of the gospel highly enough? John gave up everything for the sake of the gospel. Would, would we do the same? Would we give up everything for the proclamation of the gospel if that opportunity was presented to us? It's summertime, most of the time, not this evening, but most of the time the sun is shining, it's hot, it's beautiful. Yesterday our family was by the pool, we were soaking in the sun, we were sipping on LaCroix water, fizzy waters, right? It was great and we were splashing in the pool over at Bethesda and we were just soaking in the summer. I hope that I can soak in preaching the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ as well as I do a summer afternoon with my family. I hope you do too. Because through the preaching of God's word, we have access to Jesus Christ himself. We have fellowship with him and oh, what joy that that brings. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you because we know, as John said, he proclaimed the gospel so that we may have fellowship with him. Lord, 
sometimes the gospel goes out and it's seed on barren soil and sometimes the gospel goes out and it is seed upon good soil i pray lord that the gospel is landing upon good soil this very night i pray lord that it is bringing us joy unspeakable and full of glory and i pray that you would make our hearts attuned to you as you have revealed yourself to us in the gospel may we read your word every day may we come to sunday morning and evening worship may we go to every bible study available to us just any opportunity that we can have to hear god's word taught and preached to know christ to have fellowship with him and may it fill us with joy we ask in jesus name amen Please stand. We're going to sing Psalm 1, which is uh, going to be sung to the tune, I sing the mighty power of God. Let's sing loud. Let's over, overpower the rain tonight, okay? <laughs> 